Grab your Bible and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. One thing I love about sports is the post-game speech. All right, win or lose, after the game, the coach has to stand up before his team and say something. And a lot of times now in professional sports, there's a camera there, and they video it, and we get to watch and see what they say. If the team loses, you're generally going to hear one of two things. Team is either going to get chewed out, or they're going to hear something like, hey, we did our best, we came up short, we'll get them next time. But if the team wins, it's a celebration. People are excited, they're high-fiving, jumping around, and the coach stands up to rally his team and encourage them. But the coach also has to provide some balance to the celebration. Unless it's the Super Bowl... The coach has to celebrate what the team accomplished in the win, but also make sure they know there are still more games to come. They need to be encouraged about the win and proud of what they accomplished, but not so proud that they stop working hard and lose focus on the next game. This morning, I want to give a similar kind of message, minus the shouting, which I'm unable to do. But today is a day we set apart every year, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, to remember and celebrate what God is doing with our Multiply 2028 vision that we voted to adopt three years ago. That vision is for Blue Valley to become a multiplying church that is actively establishing campuses locally and planning autonomous churches locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally by 2028, which is our 40th anniversary as a church. Because this vision is ongoing, we also need to be reminded, or or because this vision is ongoing, we want to pause annually and celebrate what God has done and is doing through our church. But we also, because this vision is ongoing, need to be reminded of the work that's still before us. We need to make sure that we do not become so proud of past accomplishments that we lose sight of the next step. Like a good coach, we need to both celebrate the good that has happened and also look forward to the next challenge. Thankfully, we have a passage in Scripture that does pretty much that exact thing. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and both celebrated them and challenged them. He recognized that they had done some great things for the kingdom, but he wanted to make sure they knew that God still had more work for them to do. Specifically, Paul wanted them to see that there was a need they were being called to meet. The church in Jerusalem was suffering. There was a famine taking place there, and the believers were in financial need. So Paul, as a man who was committed, he said, to helping the poor, began to take up a collection offering from Gentile churches. And he wanted the Gentiles to see that since they were one now with the Jewish believers, they had a responsibility to help them. So this Gentile offering for Jewish believers became a major part of Paul's ministry. In fact, Paul wrote about it in the book of Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Galatians. Paul was not only one of the first missionaries of the church, he was likely one of the first people to lead a giving campaign in the church. He didn't just care about saving souls and planting churches, but he cared about meeting people's needs physically. And there's a lot we could say about that. This morning, let's look at Paul's message concerning the generosity of the Corinthian church. And then let's see what it says to us today as we think about our own generosity toward the multiply vision. 
Look with me now at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's start in verses 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Paul begins this chapter by using the example of the Macedonian churches. That was another region nearby where churches were in cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And here's what Paul tells us about these churches. He says they were facing two challenges. First off, they were in a severe test of affliction. He doesn't tell us what affliction that was, but something bad was happening. And second, they had extreme poverty. The Macedonian churches were not wealthy. He calls their financial situation extreme. So their example would have been especially challenging to the Corinthians because at this time in world history, Corinth was one of the wealthiest cities on the planet. They likely had plenty of money situated on a popular trade route, and yet it's the extremely poor and severely afflicted Macedonians who were the example of generosity. It's interesting. Studies have shown that people who are considered financially poor often give a greater percent of their wealth than those who are rich. We read in the news about the billionaires who give millions and millions of dollars away. And of course, wealthy people are able to give more in a greater dollar figure. But just like the woman in the temple who gave all she had that Jesus highlighted in the gospel, those who have little can actually be more generous than those who have much because of what they have left. In one study I read, the researchers concluded that those who are impoverished tend to give more because of compassion. They have a better understanding of what it's like to be in need, and that understanding motivates them to help others. So let me encourage you. Don't fall for the trap of thinking that generosity is for rich people. And say, you know, once I make more money or once I get to this point in my life or once I have this much, then I'll give away. Then I'll help others. I just don't have enough to make a difference. That is simply not the case. The other thing we learn here about the Macedonians makes their generosity even more striking. Paul says they gave with an abundance of joy. They were not sad about it. They were not worried about what they were giving up on or missing out on. They were thrilled to have an opportunity to help someone else in need. I'll share with you another interesting study that researchers have found that affirms God's design for money. And what they did in this study, they took a group of adults and had them at the very beginning of the day rate their happiness level. And then they took envelopes of money and they gave some to every single person. And one group was told to go out and to spend the money in that envelope on themselves, to treat themselves. And the people in the second group, they were told to take the envelope in their money and to spend it on someone else. At the end of the day, those participants came back together, and again, they rated their happiness levels. And which group do you think ended up being happier at the end? It was the group who was generous. It was the ones who, who gave what they'd been given. See, that's God's design for us. Jesus said himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
See, we're called to be conduits through which God's generosity flows. And when we live according to that design, we experience that abundant joy like the Macedonians. Before we move on to the next verses, don't miss this really important phrase here, maybe the most important phrase in these verses. Paul calls the gift given by the Macedonians the grace of God. He says that multiple times in this chapter because the only reason we're able to give and to help others is God's grace. Think about it. Everything we have comes from God. It's his. It's his. He just loans it to us, to stewards. So our ability to be generous and to bless other people and to advance the kingdom through our finances is not because of us. It's not because of our hard work, but it's because of God's grace to us. Let's keep going, verses 3 through 6. It says, For they gave the Macedonians according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Here's what else we learn about these generous Macedonians. They gave according to their means and also beyond their means. Now, what does that mean? Well, according to their means is saying that they gave based on what they had. If you grew up in church like I did, then you're probably familiar with that word, tithe. Tithe, that's an Old Testament word that means a tenth or 10%. It was a principle that God gave to Israel where they took and gave the first 10% of all they had back to God. They did this as a way to honor him and to demonstrate that he should get their first and their best. And that principle has carried on throughout history in the church life today. While you won't find a verse in the New Testament that says Christians have to give 10% of their income to their local church... Christians have often used that number to measure their giving. So it's a principle. It's not a command, meaning some may give less than 10%, some may give more than 10%. But, but I believe, along with most Christians today, that 10% is a good goal for our giving to our local church. I remember being taught this straight from my parents. I got my first job. I was a busboy at a local restaurant, not the best job I've ever had. And my parents said, how much you make? I said, this is how much you make. I said, all right, this is how much you give. It was ingrained into me, and it's something my wife and I still practice to this day. The cool thing about giving a tithe is that it's according to each person's means. While the amount that each of us give varies, everyone is giving the exact same slice of their pie. No one is being burdened or asked to do more than anyone else. And look, I, I know I'm a preacher talking about money. Here we go. But let me just reiterate for you. Tithing, and this is contrary to what some people will tell you. Tithing is not an explicit Christian command, as much as some would say it is. It is an Old Testament principle of giving according to your means. It's a good principle. I think we should look at it and practice it. But what the New Testament teaches is actually much more radical than just giving 10%. The New Testament teaches that we should give generously, not just a certain percent or amount, but actually over and above. Jesus called a rich man who wanted to follow him to go and sell everything he had first. 
We learn that in Acts chapter 2 in the early church, they would actually go and sell their stuff so they could provide for those in need. So the thinking wasn't, hey, I got a lot of money, and after getting everything I want and everything I need and paying all my bills, I'll see what I got left over, and then I'll give some away. No, the thinking is actually, hey, here's the money I need, but instead of using it on me, I'm going to give it away because God can do more with it that way. That's what Paul means when he says the Macedonians gave beyond their means. And notice, it wasn't because some preacher guilted them into it. It wasn't because they passed the plates around twice that week because they weren't full enough. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a service like that. But the verse actually says, did you see it? It says they did it of their own accord, begging to take part. So the Macedonians, extremely poor, severely afflicted, had already given according to their means, but they heard about the believers suffering in Jerusalem, and they were eager. They wanted to do more. They begged Paul, please let us help. Let us use what we have to be a blessing to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul tells us in verse 5, he was surprised by this. No one thought these believers in Macedonia, after all they'd been through, would be the ones leading the way and giving because they were in need themselves. But they saw an opportunity and they gave. And here's how they did it. Paul tells us the end of verse 5. says they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They didn't give to earn praise. They didn't do it to feel good about themselves and get that tax right off or get that fuzzy feeling when you help someone. They did it because they'd given themselves to God. He was their king and their Lord. And they said, God, everything we own is yours. Our very lives are yours. We belong to you. Use us for your glory. And because of God's grace in their lives, because of their generosity, we're still here today talking about these believers. So just as Paul commended and celebrated the Macedonian churches, I want to take a moment to commend and celebrate you. We have an incredibly generous church. And for that, I want to say thank you. I don't know who gives or who gives what amount. That's private. But I know there's so many of you sitting before me right now who faithfully give to this church week in and week out. You give according to your means and beyond them. Even when it's difficult, and I know there are other needs you have, God's grace is displayed through you, and I'm so grateful. Because of your giving, we can turn on the heat and stay warm today, amen? We can provide Bibles and devotionals to our children's ministry. We can put on events like Trunk or Treat to reach and bless our community. We can support impactful ministries like Rolling Ridge and help the residents there. Your giving even helps feed hungry children. Their names are Charlotte and Benjamin. <laughs> and another one to come. <laughs> I'm thankful. But seriously... Not only have you given to our regular offering, you've, you've also given over and above to our Multiply campaign. We called on you to begin giving to this campaign two years ago in November of 2020. And we probably sounded a bit crazy. Uh, we were in the middle of a once-in-a-century global pandemic. We were coming out of a presidential election with all kinds of political strife. And so much was unknown at that time. And yet, you were generous. Since then, we've used multiply funds to fully fund a Hispanic mission here on our campus, to fund a brand new church plant in Martin City, 
and to fund a church plant in one of the poorest parts of Brazil with a brand new building and ministry center. We've also retired over a million dollars in debt. And if you were to take all of our giving opportunities over the past church year, you gave more than any other year in our church's history. It's amazing. And now, because of that, Mission Esperanza is seeing Hispanic families reached in their own native language. In fact, in the next few weeks, we will have our first baptism from them. Yeah, that's awesome. Overflow Church in Martin City had their official launch, and their first Sunday, they had 85 people gather with them in an elementary school. And every week in Brazil, over 200 children are being cared for and told about Jesus. It is amazing what God has done through you. And, and we may not have experienced a Macedonian-level struggle. We are not poor and destitute by any means compared to the rest of the world. But through our own challenges, which now includes 40-year high inflation and fears of a recession, God's grace has been evident in your sacrificial generosity. So let's not miss this chance to look back and celebrate. But as I said at the beginning... The locker room speech must continue because the season is not over and we are not done yet. In fact, we're just getting started. There is so much more that God wants to do through us. So now I want to take the rest of this passage and the rest of the time we have and challenge us to keep going. Now look at verses 7 and 8. But as you excel in everything in faith... In speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So after talking about the, the generosity of the Macedonians, Paul now turns to the Corinthians. That's who he's writing this letter to. And with all the problems we know the Corinthian church had, Paul commends them for doing a lot of things well. He says, in the same way you excel in all these other things, I want you to also excel in your giving. We see here that giving is a normal part of the Christian life. Jesus, sorry, just as God wants us to honor him with our faith and our speech and our knowledge, God also wants us to honor him with our finances. I've been teaching a class on Sunday nights about God's design for money. In the very first week of the class, we spent some time trying to find as many Bible verses on the topic of money as we could. And we filled up an entire whiteboard with references filled with stuff about money and possessions. And there was still so much more we couldn't even get to. You may not realize the Bible talks that much about our money and our possessions, but it does. It has a lot to say. And I believe that's because God cares immensely about what we do with what we have. The way we use our money and our stuff shows what we really believe about God and if we're actually surrendered to him. So just as the Corinthians were growing in other areas of their Christian life, Paul wanted them to see that their generosity was another key part of their faith. He then clarifies himself that he's not saying this as a command. Now, what's up with that? Well, Paul goes to great lengths in these chapters to make sure that giving takes place with the right motive. Paul does not want the Corinthians to give because they're being coerced or forced into it by him or anyone else. 
Rather, he wants them to give out of love to prove that their love is genuine. Here again, we see how vital giving is to the Christian life. It's one of the ways we demonstrate our love for God and for others. The Bible says it's not enough to simply say you love God and his church, but one of the ways to test the genuineness of your love is how you give of yourself and what you have away. Paul then gives us the ultimate motivation for our giving. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The ultimate reason we give is because of what's been given to us in Christ. This is a beautiful summary of the gospel in one verse. It says, Jesus was rich, that, eters- that, that refers to his eternal standing. You see, before Jesus came to the earth in Bethlehem, he existed for all eternity in heaven as the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And where was he before he took on flesh? He was with God, enjoying perfect fellowship and love with God the Father and God the Spirit. He was spiritually rich in the fullest sense. And yet, he chose to become poor. He left all that perfection in heaven to come here to a broken world stained with sin and evil. Why? He suffered in every way, even to the point of being killed on a cross. Why? Why did he do it? Well, Paul tells us, for your sake. He did it for you. That by his poverty, you might become rich. And think about it. There's that big trade that happened. Jesus was rich. And you and became poor, and you were poor and became rich. Jesus took our sin and death, and he gave us eternal life. See, that's what he means there by rich. It's not physical wealth. It's eternal riches, the the riches of knowing God and what he's done, which far exceeds anything earthly. So the gospel message about Jesus is the key to our giving. His grace empowers us to give like he did. And that gospel message is also our example. We will never outgive God. Whatever we sacrifice or give up pales in comparison to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. So when we sacrifice in generosity, it serves as a testimony of what God has done for us. We can say, Because Jesus has given me everything, because of what he's done, I don't need to hang on to my stuff. I don't need to claw and scratch to get the next bigger and better thing. But I can joyfully and freely give it away because it was never mine in the first place. See, the gospel of Jesus is the reason we can be generous. Let's keep going. Look at verses 10 and 11. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. It seems here that the Corinthians had begun to collect this offering a year ago. They wanted to help out, but somehow they got derailed. For one reason or another, they had not completed what they set out to do. So Paul says, hey, finish. Finish what you started. You had the right desire. Now you just need to complete it, so keep going. And then he concludes his challenge in verses 12 to 15. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. 
For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul was not asking the Corinthians to do something, to give something they didn't have. Again, they were a wealthy people. They had a lot. And Paul wasn't picking on them or asking them to do something that others weren't doing. They had an abundance, and Paul wanted them to see that their abundance was given to them so that they might meet someone in need. And one day, it might be the other way around. They might end up as the ones in need and have to help and have someone else help them. That's what that closing quote means. Paul's referencing the Old Testament when the Israelites gathered manna. Remember that story? God sent manna every night from heaven. So when they woke up in the morning, whether it was a little or a lot, God gave everyone exactly what they needed. And he does the same today. God will supply the needs of his people, and he does it through the generosity of others. So just as Paul challenged the Corinthian church, I now want to challenge us. Three years ago, we unanimously, between both of our campuses, said that Multiply 2028 is what God is calling us to do. And again, two years ago, as we launched the Multiply campaign, that we said that we believe that becoming debt-free would enable us to accomplish what God is calling us to do. We made those commitments. We had the desire, and we immediately put them into action. We've accomplished a lot. But we cannot stop now and just pat ourselves on the back. We can't slow down or look back too long. This task, this calling is too great. It's too important. So we got to press on harder than we ever have before. That means first and foremost, finishing the Multiply campaign and burning our note as a debt-free church. Look, I know that giving to pay off debt is not nearly as exciting to give to plant a church. But we have to understand that paying off debt is what will give us the ability to plant more churches. Becoming debt-free will open up $252,000 every year in our budget. And people have rightly asked us, well, what will we do with that money once it's freed up? So Pastor Derek, our lead pastor, tasked a group of staff and elders with what he called the million-dollar question. Very creative. See, now that we've hit a million in debt left, what will we do when it's gone? Well, the answer to the million-dollar question is actually three answers. Like every good sermon, there are three points. When we are debt-free, we're going to use that money that was going toward debt for three things. Number one, some of that money will go to make sure our current budget needs are fully met. It's not overly exciting, but if we are behind on our budget when our debt is gone, then excess funds are not exactly excess so once the Multiply campaign ends, it's going to be important that we continue our record generosity to our general budget. Number two, some of that money will, of course, go to Multiply initiatives. That's the exciting part. Along with funds we get from our partners like the North American Mission Board, we will be able to fund a church planting or campus planting resident all the time so that we are consistently training up new men and sending them out to plant. We'll also be able to continue supporting our current church partners and plants. We'd also like to offer partial scholarships to those who want to take their first mission trip. 
We want to be able to send teams regularly to Brazil and begin planning to start another international church plant. Then number three, some of that money will go to improve We'll go to improving and being good stewards of our current buildings and resources. Over the years, as we've paid off debt, we've had to put off some things that needed to be done. For example, the renovation here at our campus is now eight years old. Can you believe that? We haven't done any sort of improvements since then. At the Antioch campus, their last renovation was 13 years ago with carpets as old as 21 years The outside of that campus has not been painted since it was built. So there's some vital work that needs to be done here if we want to be able to continue multiplying long into the future and not burden ourselves down the road. We'd also love to build new playgrounds at both of our campuses so we can bless the families that come here, playgrounds that are ADA compliant and open to all. We also need to pave the rest of our Ridgeview parking lot, as you see, we slowly descending into the abyss. (laughs) So that's the answer to the million-dollar question. When our debt is gone and our budget is right-sized, our plan, our dream would be to split up the freed-up money in our budget 60-40, putting 60% to multiply initiatives so we can continue the vision God has given us, and putting 40% to building improvements so we can also be good stewards of what we have and maintain our facilities long term. We have to have a solid base if we want to continue to send. But here's what all this requires. It requires generosity. It's going to take all of us being generous with what God has given us. So let me close with this personal challenge. This is my ask, not as a command, but as a request. Would you prayerfully consider how you are giving to our church? Would you, along with me, pick a time, not along with me, but I'm going to do the same thing. (laughs) Would you pick a time over the coming weeks and sit down and simply look at what you're currently giving to our church? And then would you pray? And seek God's guidance for how he might have you be generous going forward into 2023. And I know that's going to look differently for each of us. If you consider Blue Valley to be your home, but you've not yet begun to give, I ask that you would consider starting to give to our regular offering. If you give to our regular offering already, I ask that you would consider giving over and above what you're able to the Multiply campaign And if God has somehow blessed you with an abundance, I don't know who you are. I don't want to know who you are. But I truly believe we have the resources in our church to pay off this debt by the end of 2022. And it is my bold, God-sized prayer that we will. God has blessed our church. There's no doubt about it. By his grace, we have received so much, and we've given much away. God's doing work. But we got to keep going. And with your help, I believe we can do so much more. Would you bow your head with me?